Samuel Vimes dreamed about clues. He had a jaundiced view of clues. He instinctively distrusted them. They got in the way. And he distrusted the kind of person who'd take one look at another man and say in a lordly voice to his companion, "'Ah, oh, my dear sir, I can tell you nothing except that he is a left-handed stonemason who has spent some years in the Merchant Navy and has recently fallen on hard times.' and then unroll a lot of supercilious commentary about calluses and stance and the state of a man's boots, when exactly the same comments could apply to a man who was wearing his old clothes because he'd been doing a spot of home bricklaying for a new barbecue pit and had been tattooed once when he was drunk and 17, these terms are often synonymous, and in fact got seasick on a wet pavement. What arrogance, what an insult to the rich and chaotic variety of the human experience. It was the same with more static evidence. The footprints in the flowerbed were probably, in the real world, left by the window cleaner. The scream in the night was quite likely a man getting out of bed and stepping sharply on an upturned hairbrush. The real world was far too real to leave neat little hints. It was full of too many things. It wasn't by eliminating the impossible that you got at the truth, however improbable. It was by the much harder process of eliminating the possibilities. You worked away, patiently asking questions and looking hard at things. You walked and talked, and in your heart you just hoped like hell that some bugger's nerve would crack and he'd give himself up. The events of the day clanged together in Vimes's head. Golems tramped like sad shadows. Father Tubalcheck waved at him, and then his head exploded, showering Vimes in words. Mr Hopkinson lay dead in his own oven, a slice of dwarf bread in his mouth, and the golems marched on silently. There was Dorful dragging its foot, its head open for the words to fly in and out of, like a swarm of bees, and in the middle of it all, Arsenic danced, a spiky little green man, crackling and gibbering. At one point he thought one of the golems screamed. After that, the dream faded a bit at a time. Golems, oven, words, priest, Dorful, golems marching, the thudding of their feet making the whole dream pulsate. Vimes opened his eyes. Beside him, Lady Sybil said, and turned over. Someone was hammering at the front door. Still muzzy, head swimming, Vimes pulled himself up on his elbows and said to the nighttime world in general, What sort of a time do you call this? Bingly, bingly, beep, said a cheerful voice from the direction of Vimes's dressing table. Oh, please. Twenty-nine minutes and thirty-one seconds past five a.m., a penny saved is a penny earned. Would you like me to present your schedule for today? While I am doing this, why not take some time to fill out your registration card? What? What? What are you talking about? The knocking continued. Vimes fell out of bed and groped in the dark for the matches. He finally got a candle alight and half ran, half staggered down the long stairs and into the hall. The knocker turned out to be Constable Visit. It's Lord Vetinari, sir. It's worse this time. Has anyone sent for Donut Jimmy? Yes, sir. At this time of day, the fog was fighting a rearguard action against the dawn and made the whole world look as though it were inside a ping-pong ball. I poked my head in as soon as I came on shift and he was out like a light, sir. How did you know he wasn't asleep? On the floor, sir, with all his clothes on. A couple of watchmen had put the patrician on his bed by the time Vimes arrived, slightly out of breath and with his knees aching. Gods, he thought, as he struggled up the stairs, it's not like the old truncheon and bell days. You wouldn't think twice about running halfway across the city, coppers and criminals locked in hot pursuit. With a mixture of pride and shame, he added, and none of the buggers ever caught me either. The patrician was still breathing, but his face was waxy, and he looked as though death might be an improvement. 
Vimes's gaze roamed the room. There was a familiar haze in the air. "'Who opened the window?' he demanded. "'I did, sir,' said Visit, "'just before I went to get you. "'He looked as though he needed some fresh air.' "'It'd be fresher if you left the window shut,' said Vimes. "'Okay. I want everyone, I mean everyone, "'who was in this place overnight, "'rounded up and down in the hall in two minutes, "'and someone fetch Corporal Littlebottom, "'and tell Captain Carrot.' "'I'm worried and confused,' he thought, "'so the first rule in the book is to spread it around.' "'He prowled around the room.' It didn't take much intelligence to see that Vetinari had got up and moved over to his writing desk, where, by the look of it, he had worked for some time. The candle had burned right down. An inkwell had been overturned, presumably when he'd slipped off the chair. Vimes dipped a finger in the ink and sniffed it. Then he reached for the quill pen beside it, hesitated, took out his dagger and lifted the long feather gingerly. There seemed to be no cunning little barbs on it, but he put it carefully on one side for Littlebottom to examine later. He glanced down at the paper Vetinari had been working on. To his surprise, it wasn't writing at all, but a careful drawing. It showed a striding figure, except that the figure was not one person at all, but made up of thousands of smaller figures. The effect was like one of the wicker men built by some of the more outlandish tribes near the hub, when they annually celebrated the great cycle of nature and their reverence for life by piling as much of it as possible in a great heap and setting fire to it. The composite man was wearing a crown, Vimes pushed the sheet of paper aside and returned his attention to the desk. He brushed the surface carefully for any suspicious splinters. He crouched down and examined the underside. The light was growing outside. Vimes went into both the rooms alongside and made sure their drapes were open, and then went back into Vetinari's room, closed the curtains and the doors, and sidled along the walls looking for any telltale speck of light that might indicate a small hole. Where could you stop? Splinters in the floor? "'Blowpipes through the keyhole?' "'He opened the curtains again. "'Vetinari had been on the mend yesterday, "'and now he looked worse. "'Someone had got to him in the night. "'How? "'Slow poison was the devil of a thing. "'You had to find a way of giving it to the victim every day. "'No, you didn't. "'What was elegant was finding a way "'of getting him to administer it to himself every day.' "'Vimes rummaged through the paperwork.' Vetinari had obviously felt well enough to get up and walk over here, but here was where he had collapsed. You couldn't poison a splinter or a nail because he wouldn't keep on nicking himself. There was a book half buried in the papers, but it had a lot of bookmarks in it, mostly torn bits of old letters. What did he do every day? Vimes opened the book. Every page was covered with handwritten symbols. You have to get a poison like arsenic into the body. It isn't enough to touch it. Or is it? Is there a kind of arsenic you can pick up through the skin? No one was getting in. Vimes was almost certain of that. The food and drink were probably all right, but he'd get detritus to go and have another one of his little talks with the cooks in any case. Something he breathed? How could you keep that up day after day without arousing suspicion somewhere? Anyway, you'd have to get your poison into the room. Something already in the room... Cheery had a different carpet put down and replaced the bed. What else could you do? Strip the paint from the ceiling? What had Vetinari told Cheery about poisoning? You put it where no one will look at all. Vimes realised he was still staring at the book. There wasn't anything there that he could recognise. It must be a code of some sort. Knowing Vetinari, it wouldn't be crackable by anyone in a normal frame of mind. Could you poison a book? So what? There were other books. You'd have to know he'd look at this one continuously. And even then, you'd have to get the poison into him. 
A man might prick his finger once, and after that he'd take care. It sometimes worried Vimes the way he suspected everything. If you started wondering whether a man could be poisoned by words, you might as well accuse the wallpaper of driving him mad. Mind you, that horrible green colour could drive anyone insane. Bingley beep beep bleep. Oh, no. This is your 6am wake-up call. Good morning. Here are your appointments for today. Insert name here, 10am. Shut up. Listen, whatever's in my diary for today is definitely not. Vimes stopped. He lowered the box. He went back to the desk. If you assumed one page per day... Lord Vetinari had a very good memory. But everyone wrote things down, didn't they? You couldn't remember every little thing. Wednesday, 3pm, Reign of Terror, 3.15pm, Clean Out Scorpion Pit. He held the organiser up to his lips. Take a memo, he said. Hooray! Go right ahead! Don't forget to say memo first. Speak to... a oh, blast! Memo! What about Vetinari's journal? Is that it? Yes. Someone knocked politely at the door. Vimes opened it carefully. Oh, it's you, little bottom. Vimes blinked. Something wasn't right about the dwarf. I'll mix up some of Mr. Donut's jollop right away, sir. The dwarf looked past Vimes to the bed. Ooh, he doesn't look good, does he? Get someone to move him into a different bedroom, said Vimes. Get the servers to prepare a new room, right? Yes, sir. And after they've done it, pick a different room at random and move him into it, and change everything, understand? Every stick of furniture, every vase, every rug. Er, uh, yes, sir. Vimes hesitated. Now he could put his finger on what had been bothering him for the last twenty seconds. Little bottom. Sir? You, er, uh, you, on your ears? Earrings, sir, said Cheery nervously. Constable Angua gave them to me. Really? Er, uh, right. I didn't think dwarfs wore jewellery, that's all. We're known for rings, sir. Yes, of course, rings, yes. No one quite like a dwarf for forging a magical ring, but magical earrings? Oh, well, there were some waters too deep to wade. Sergeant Detritus's approach to these matters was almost instinctively correct. He had the palace staff lined up in front of him and was shouting at them at the top of his voice. Look at old detritus, Vimes thought as he went down the stairs. Just your basic thick troll a few years ago, now a valuable member of the watch, provided you get him to repeat his orders back to you to make sure he understands you. His armour gleams even brighter than carrots because he doesn't get bored with polishing. And he's mastered policing as it is practised by the majority of forces in the universe, which is basically screaming angrily at people until they give in. The only reason that he's not a one-troll reign of terror is the ease with which his thought processes can be derailed by anyone who tries something fiendishly cunning like an outright denial. "'I know you all done it,' he was shouting. "'If the person what done it does not own up, the whole staff, and I means this, the whole staff will be locked up in the tanti, also we throws the key away.' He pointed a finger at a stout scullery maid. It was you what done it, own up. No, Detritus paused. Then, where was you last night? Own up. In bed, of course. Aha, that's a likely story. Own up. That where you always is at night? Of course. Aha, own up. You got witnesses? Sauce. Ah, so you got no witnesses. You done it then. Own up. No, 
Oh. All right, all right, thank you, Sergeant. That will be all for now, said Vimes, patting him on the shoulder. Are all the staff here? He glared at the line-up. Well, are you all here? There was a certain amount of reluctant shuffling among the ranks, and then someone cautiously put up a hand. "'Mildred Easy hasn't been seen since yesterday,' said its owner. "'She's the upstairs maid. A boy come with a message. "'She had to go off to see her family.' "'Vimes felt the faintest prickles on the back of his neck. "'Anyone know why?' he said. "'Dunno, sir. She left all her stuff.' "'All right. Sergeant, before you go off shift, "'get someone to find her and then go and get some sleep. "'The rest of you, go and get on with whatever it is you do. "'Ah, Mr Drumnot.' The patrician's personal clerk, who'd been watching Detritus's technique with a horrified expression, looked up at him. "'Yes, Commander?' "'What's this book? Is it his lordship's diary?' Drumnot took the book. "'It looks like it, certainly.' "'Have you been able to crack the code?' "'I didn't know it was in code, Commander.' "'What? You've never looked at it?' "'Why should I, sir? It's not mine.' "'You do know his last secretary tried to kill him?' "'Yes, sir. I ought to say, sir, that I have already been exhaustively interrogated by your men.' Drumnot opened the book and raised his eyebrows. "'What did they say?' said Vimes. Drumnot looked up thoughtfully. "'Let me see now. It was you what done it, own up. Everybody seen you. We got lots of people say you done it. You done it all right, didn't you? Own up.' That was, I think, the, the, the general approach. And then I said it wasn't me, and that seemed to puzzle the officer concerned. Drumnot delicately licked his fingers and turned a page. Vimes stared at him. The sound of saws was brisk on the morning air. Captain Carrot knocked against the timberyard door, which was eventually opened. Good morning, sir, he said. I understand you have a golem here. Had, said the timber merchant. "'Oh, dear, another one,' said Angua. "'That made four so far. "'The one in the foundry had knelt under a hammer. "'The one in the stonemason's yard was now ten clay toes "'sticking out from under a two-ton block of limestone. "'One working in the docks had last been seen in the river, "'striding towards the sea. "'And now this one.' "'It was weird,' said the merchant, thumping the golem's chest. "'Sydney said it went on sawing all the way up to the moment "'it sawed its head right off.' "'I've got a load of ash planking got to go out this afternoon. "'Who's going to saw it up, may I ask?' "'Angua picked up the golem's head. "'Insofar as it had any expression at all, "'it was one of intense concentration. "'Here,' said the merchant, "'Alf told me he heard in the drum last night "'that golems have been murdering people.' "'Inquiries are continuing,' said Carrot. "'Now then, Mr... It's Preble Skink, isn't it? "'Your brother runs the lamp oil shop in Cable Street, "'and your daughter is a maid at the university?' The man looked astonished, but Carrot knew everyone. Yeah. Did your golem leave the yard yesterday evening? Well, early on, something about a holy day. He looked nervously from one to the other. You've got to let them go, otherwise the word's in their heads. And then it came back and worked all night? Yeah, what else would it do? And then Alf came in on early turn, and he said it came up out of the saw pit, stood there for a moment, and then... Was it sawing pine logs yesterday? said Angua. "'That's right. Where am I going to get another golem at short notice, may I ask?' "'What's this?' said Angua. She picked up a wood-framed square from the heap of sawdust. "'This was its slate, was it?' she handed it to Carrot. "'Thou shalt not kill,' Carrot read slowly. "'Clay of my clay ashamed. Do you have any idea why it had write that?' "'Search me,' said Skink. 
They're always doing dumb things. He brightened up a bit. Hey, perhaps it went potty. <laughs> Get it? Clay? Pot? Potty? Extremely funny, said Carrot gravely. I will take this as evidence. Good morning. Why did you ask about pine logs, he said to Angua as they stepped outside. I smelled the same pine resin in the cellar. Pine resin's just pine resin, isn't it? No, not to me. That golem was in there. They all were, sighed Carrot, and now they're committing suicide. You can't take life you haven't got, said Angua. What shall we call it, then? Destruction of property, said Carrot. Anyway, we can't ask them now. He tapped the slate. They've given us the answers, he said. Perhaps we can find out what the questions should have been. What do you mean, nothing? said Vimes. It's got to be the book. He licks his fingers to turn a page, and every day he gets a little dose of arsenic. Fiendishly clever. Sorry, sir, said Cheery, backing away. I can't find a trace. I've used all the tests I know. You sure? I could send it up to the Unseen University. They've built a new morphic resonator in the high-energy magic building. Magic would easily... Don't do that, said Vimes. We'll keep the wizards out of this. Damn, for half an hour there I really thought I'd got it. He sat down at his desk. Something new was odd about the dwarf, but again he couldn't quite work out what it was. "'We're missing something here, Little Bottom,' he said. "'Yes, sir.' "'Let's look at the facts. If you want to poison someone slowly, you've either got to give them small doses all the time, or at least every day. We've covered everything the patrician does. It can't be the air in the room. You and I have been in there every day. It's not the food, we're pretty sure of that. Is something stinging him? Can you poison a wasp?' What we need... Excuse me, sir! Vimes turned. Detritus, I thought you were off duty. I got them to give me the address of that maid called Easy, like you said, said Detritus stoically. I went up there and there was people all looking in. What do you mean? Neighbours and that, crying women all around the door, and I remember what you said about that diplo word. "'Diplomacy,' said Vimes. "'Yeah, not shouting at people and that. "'I thought, this looks a delicate situation. "'Also, they was throwing stuff at me. "'So I come back here, I write down their dress, "'and now I'm going home.' "'He saluted, rocked slightly from the force of the blow "'to the side of his head, and departed. "'Thanks, Detritus,' said Vimes. "'He looked at the paper written in the troll's big round hand.' First floor, back, 27 Cockbill Street,' he said. "'Good grief!' "'You know it, sir?' "'Should do. I was born in that street,' said Vimes. "'It's down below the shades. Easy. Easy. "'Yes, now I remember there was a Mrs Easy down the road. "'Skinny woman, did a lot of sewing, big family. "'Well, we were all big families. It was the only way to keep warm.' "'He frowned at the paper. "'It wasn't as if it were any particular lead.' Maid servants were always going off to see their mothers, every time there was the least little family upset. What was it his granny had used to say? Your son's your son till he takes a wife, but your daughter's your daughter all her life. Sending a watchman around would almost certainly be a waste of everyone's time. Well, well, Cockbill Street, he said. He stared at the paper again. You might as well rename the place Memory Lane. No, you couldn't waste watch resources on a wild goose chase like that. But he might look in, on his way past. Sometime today? Uh, Little Bottom? Sir? On your lips, sir. Red, uh, on, on your lips. Lipstick, sir. Oh, 
Uh, lipstick. Mm, fine. Lipstick. Constable Angua gave it to me, sir. That was kind of her, said Vimes. I expect. It was called the Rat's Chamber. In theory, this was because of the decoration. Some former resident of the palace had thought that a fresco of dancing rats would be a real decorative coup. There was a pattern of rats woven in the carpet. On the ceiling, rats danced in a circle, their tails intertwining at the centre. After half an hour in that room, most people wanted a wash. Soon, then, there would be a big rush on the hot water. The room was filling up fast. By common consent, the chair was taken and amply filled by Mrs. Rosemary Palm, head of the Guild of Seamstresses, as they were euphemistically named. People said they call themselves seamstresses, ahem, ahem, as one of the most senior guild leaders. Quiet, please, gentlemen. The noise level subsided a little. Dr. Downey, she said. The head of the Assassin's Guild nodded. "'My friends, I think we are all aware of the situation,' he began. "'Yeah, so's your accountant,' said a voice in the crowd. There was a ripple of nervous laughter, but it didn't last long, because you don't laugh too loud at someone who knows exactly how much you're worth dead. Dr Downey smiled. "'I can assure you once again, gentlemen and ladies, that I am aware of no engagement regarding Lord Vetinari.' "'In any case, I cannot imagine that an assassin would use poison in this case. "'His lordship spent some time at the assassin's school. "'He knows the uses of caution. "'No doubt he will recover.' "'And if he doesn't?' said Mrs. Palm. "'No one lives forever,' said Dr. Downey, "'in the calm voice of a man who personally knew this to be true. "'Then no doubt we'll get a new ruler.' "'The room went very silent. "'The word, "'Who?' "'hovered silently above every head. "'The thing is, the thing is,' said Gerhard Sock, head of the Butcher's Guild, "'it's been, you've got to admit it, it's been, well, think about some of the others. "'The words Lord Snapcase now, at least this one isn't actually insane, "'flickered in the group consciousness. "'I have to admit,' said Mrs. Palm, "'that under Vetinari it has certainly been safer to walk the streets.' "'You should know, madam.' said Mr. Sock. Mrs. Palm gave him an icy look. There were a few sniggers. I meant that a modest payment to the Thieves' Guild is all that is required for perfect safety, she finished. And indeed a man may visit a house of ill-negotiable hospitality, said Mrs. Palm quickly, indeed, and be quite confident of not waking up stripped stark naked and beaten black and blue, said Sock. Unless his tastes run that way, said Mrs. Palm, we aim to give satisfaction, very accurately if required. Life has certainly been more reliable under Vetinari, said Mr. Potts of the Baker's Guild. He does have all straight theatre players and mime artists thrown into Scorpion Pit, said Mr. Boggus of the Thieves' Guild. True, but let's not forget that he has his bad points too. The man is capricious. You think so? Compared to the ones we had before, he's as reliable as a rock. "'Snapcase was reliable,' said Mr. Sock gloomily. "'Remember when he made his horse a city councillor? "'You've got to admit he wasn't a bad councillor compared to some of the others. "'As I recall, the others at the time were a vase of flowers, "'a heap of sand, and three people who had been beheaded. "'Remember all those fights, all the little gangs of thieves fighting all the time? 
It got so that there was hardly any energy left to actually steal things, said Mr Boggis. Things are indeed more reliable now. Silence descended again. That was it, wasn't it? Things were reliable now. Whatever else you said about old Vetinari, he made sure today was always followed by tomorrow. If you were murdered in your bed, at least, it would be by arrangement. Things were more exciting under Lord Snapcase, someone ventured. Yes, right up to the point when your head fell off. The trouble is, said Mr Boggus, that the job makes people mad. You take some chap who's no worse than any of us, and after a few months he's talking to moss and having people flayed alive. Vetinari isn't mad. Depends how you look at it. No one can be as sane as he is without being mad. I am only a weak woman, said Mrs Palm, to the personal disbelief of several present, but it does seem to me that there's an opportunity here. Either there's a long struggle to sort out a successor, or we sort it out now, yes? The guild leaders tried to look at one another while simultaneously avoiding everyone else's glances. Who'd be patrician now? Once there'd have been a huge multi-sided power struggle, but now you got the power, but you got the problems too. Things had changed. These days you had to negotiate and juggle with all the conflicting interests. No one sane had tried to kill Vetinari for years, because the world with him in it was just preferable to the one without him. Besides, Vetinari had tamed Ankh Morpork. He tamed it like a dog. He'd taken a minor scavenger among scavengers, and lengthened its teeth, and strengthened its jaws, and built up its muscles, and studded its collar, and fed it lean steak, and then he'd aimed it at the throat of the world. He'd taken all the gangs and squabbling groups, and made them see that a small slice of the cake on a regular basis was better by far than a bigger slice with a dagger in it. He'd made them see that it was better to take a small slice, but enlarge the cake. Ankh-Morpork, alone of all the cities of the plains, had opened its gates to dwarfs and trolls. Alloys are stronger, Vetinari had said. It had worked. They made things. Often they made trouble, but mostly they made wealth. As a result, although Ankh-Morpork still had many enemies, those enemies had to finance their armies with borrowed money. Most of it was borrowed from Ankh-Morpork, at punitive interest. There hadn't been any really big wars for years. Ankh-Morpork had made them unprofitable. Thousands of years ago, the old empire had enforced the Pax Morporkia, which had said to the world, Do not fight, or we will kill you. The Pax had arisen again, but this time it said, If you fight, we'll call in your mortgages. And incidentally, that's my pike you're pointing at me. I paid for that shield you're holding, and take my helmet off when you speak to me, you horrible little debtor. And now the whole machine, which whirred away so quietly that people had forgotten it was a machine at all, and thought that it was just the way the world worked, had given a lurch. The guild leaders examined their thoughts and decided that what they did not want was power. What they wanted was that tomorrow should be pretty much like today. There's the dwarfs, said Mr Boggis. Even if one of us, not that I'm saying it would be one of us, of course, even if someone took over, what about the dwarfs? We get someone like Snapcase again, there's going to be chopped kneecaps in the streets. You're not suggesting we have some sort of vote, are you? Some sort of popularity contest? Ah, oh, no, it's just it's just all more complicated now, and power goes to people's heads. And then other people's heads fall off. I wish you wouldn't keep on saying that, whoever you are, said Mrs Palm. Anyone would think you'd had your head cut off. Huh? Oh, it's you, Mr Slant. I do apologise. 
Speaking as the president of the Guild of Lawyers, said Mr Slant, the most respected zombie in Ankh-Morpork, I must recommend stability in this matter. I wonder if I may offer some advice. How much will it cost us, said Mr Sock. Stability, said Mr Slant, equals monarchy. Oh, now don't tell us. Look at Clatch, said Mr Slant doggedly. Generations of serifs. Result, political stability. Take Pseudopolis, or Stolat, or even the Agatean Empire. Come on, said Dr Downey. Everyone knows that kings... Oh, monarchs come and go, they depose one another and so forth, said Mr Slant. But the institution goes on. Besides, I think you'll find that it is possible to work out an accommodation. He realised that he had the floor. His fingers absent-mindedly touched the seam where his head had been sewn back on. All those years ago, Mr Slant had refused to die until he had been paid for the disbursements in the matter of conducting his own defence. How do you mean? said Mr Potts. I accept that the question of resurrecting the Ankh-Morpork succession has been raised several times recently, said Mr Slant. Yes, by madman, said Mr Boggis. It's part of the symptoms. Put underpants on head, talk to trees, drool, decide that Ankh-Morpork needs a king. Exactly. Supposing sane men were to give it consideration. Go on, said Dr Downey. There have been precedents, said Mr Slant. Monarchies who have found themselves bereft of a convenient monarch have obtained one. Some suitably born member of some other royal line. After all, what is required is someone who, um, knows the ropes, as I believe the saying goes. Sorry, are you saying we send out for a king, said Mr Boggus? We put up some kind of advertisement. Throne vacant, applicant must supply own crown. In fact, said Mr Slant, ignoring this, I recall that during the First Empire, Genua wrote to Ankh-Morpork and asked to be sent one of our generals to be their king, their own royal lines having died out through interbreeding so intensively that the last king kept trying to breed with himself. The history books say that we sent our loyal general Tacticus, whose first act after obtaining the crown was to declare war on Ankh-Morpork. Kings are interchangeable. "'You mentioned something about reaching an accommodation,' said Mr Boggus. "'You mean, we tell a king what to do?' "'I like the sound of that,' said Mrs Palm. "'I like the echoes,' said Dr Downey. "'Not tell,' said Mr Slant. "'We agree. "'Obviously, as king, he would concentrate on those things "'traditionally associated with kingship.' "'Waving,' said Mr Sock. "'Being gracious,' said Mrs Palm. "'Welcoming ambassadors from foreign countries.' said Mr. Potts. Shaking hands? Cutting off heads? No, 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 that will not be part of his duties. Minor affairs of state will be carried out by... by his advisers, said Dr. Downey. He leaned back. I'm sure I can see where this is going, Mr. Slant, he said, but kings once acquired are so damned hard to get rid of, acceptably. There have been precedents for that, too, said Mr. Slant. The assassin's eyes narrowed. I am intrigued, Mr. Slant, that as soon as the Lord Vetinari appears to be seriously ill, you pop up with suggestions like this. It sounds like a remarkable coincidence. There is no mystery, I assure you. Destiny works its course. Surely many of you have heard the rumours that there is in this city someone with a bloodline traceable all the way back to the last royal family? Someone working in this very city in a comparatively humble position? A lowly watchman, in fact? There were some nods, but not very definite ones. They were to nods what a grunt is to yes. The guilds all picked up information. 
No one wanted to reveal how much or how little they personally knew, just in case they knew too little, or even worse, turned out to know too much. However, Doc Pseudopolis of the Guild of Gamblers put on a careful poker face and said, Yes, but the tricentennial is coming up, and in a few years it'll be the century of the rat. There's something about centuries that gives people a kind of fever. Nevertheless, the person exists, said Mr Slant. The evidence stares one in the face if one looks in the right places. Very well, said Mr Boggis. Tell us the name of this captain. He often lost large sums at poker. Captain, said Mr Slant. I'm sorry to say his natural talents have thus far not commended him to that extent. He is a corporal. Corporal C.W. St. J. Nobbs. There was a silence. And then there was a strange putt-putting sound, like water negotiating its way through a partially blocked pipe. Queen Molly of the Beggar's Guild had so far been silent, apart from occasional damp sucking noises, as she tried to dislodge a particle of her lunch from the things which, because they were still in her mouth and apparently attached, were technically her teeth. Now she was laughing. The hairs wobbled on every wart. <laughs> Nobby knobs, she said. You're talking about Nobby knobs? He is the last known descendant of the Earl of Ancre, who could trace his descent all the way to a distant cousin to the last king, said Mr Slant. It's the talk of the city. A picture forms in my mind, said Dr Downey. Small, monkey-like chap, always smoking very short cigarettes. Spotty. He squeezes them in public. <laughs> That's snobby, Queen Molly chuckled. Face like a blind carpenter's thumb. Him? But the man's a tit. And dim as a penny candle, said Mr Boggis. I don't see... Suddenly he stopped, and then contracted the contemplative silence that was gradually affecting everyone else around the table. Don't see why we shouldn't give this due consideration, he said after a while. The assembled leaders looked at the table, then they looked at the ceiling, then they studiously avoided one another's glance. Blood will out, said Mr Carey. When I've watched him go down the street, I've always thought, there's a man who walks in greatness, said Mrs Palm. He squeezes them in a very regal way, mind you, very graciously. The silence rolled over the assembly again, but it was busy in the same way that the silence of an anthill is busy. I must remind you, ladies and gentlemen, that poor Lord Betinari is still alive, said Mrs Palm. Indeed, indeed, said Mr Slant, and long may he remain so. I've merely set out for you one option against that day. May it be a long time coming when we should consider... A successor. In any case, said Dr. Downey, there is no doubt that Vetinari has been overdoing it. If he survives, which is greatly to be hoped, of course, I feel we should require him to step down for the sake of his health. Well done, thou good and faithful servant, and so on. Buy him a nice house in the country somewhere, give him a pension, make sure there's a seat for him at official dinners. Obviously, if he can be so easily poisoned, now he should welcome the release from the chains of office. "'What about the wizards?' said Mr. Boggis. "'They've never got involved in civic concerns,' said Dr. Downey. "'Give them four meat meals a day and tip your hat to them and they're happy. "'They know nothing about politics.' "'The silence that followed was broken by the voice of Queen Molly of the beggars. "'What about vimes?' "'Dr. Downey shrugged. "'He is a servant of the city.' "'That's what I mean.' 
Surely we represent the city. <laughs> he won't see it that way. And you know what Vimes thinks about kings? It was a Vimes who chopped the head off the last one. There's a bloodline that thinks a swing of an axe can solve anything. Now, Molly, you know Vimes had probably take an axe to Vetinari if he thought he could get away with it. No love lost there, I fancy. He won't like it, that's all I tell you. Vetinari keeps Vimes wound up. No knowing what happens if he unwinds all at once. He's a public servant, snapped Dr Downey. Queen Molly made a face which was not difficult in one so naturally well endowed and sat back. So this is the new way of things, is it? she muttered. Lot of ordinary men sit around a table and talk and suddenly the world's a different place. The sheep turn round and charge the shepherd. There's a soiree at Lady Silarch's house this evening, said Dr Downey, ignoring her. I believe Nobbs is being invited. Perhaps we can meet him. Vimes told himself he was really going to inspect the progress on the new watch house in Chitling Street. Cockbill Street was just around the corner, and then he'd call in, informally. No sense in sparing a man when they were pushed anyway. What with those murders and veterinary and detritus's anti-slab crusade? He turned the corner and stopped. Nothing much had changed. That was the shocking thing. After, ooh, too many years, things had no right not to have changed. But washing lines still crisscrossed the street between the grey ancient buildings. Antique paint still peeled in the way cheap paint peeled, when it had been painted on wood too old and rotten to take paint. Cockbill Street people were usually too penniless to afford decent paint, but always far too proud to use whitewash. And the place was slightly smaller than he remembered, that was all. When had he last come down here? He couldn't remember. It was beyond the shades, and up until quite recently the watch had tended to leave that area to its own unspeakable devices. Unlike the shades, though, Cockbill Street was clean, with the haunting, empty cleanliness you get when people can't afford to waste dirt. For Cockbill Street was where people lived who were worse than poor, because they didn't know how poor they were. If you asked them, they would probably say something like, Mustn't grumble? Or, There's far worse off than us? Or, We've always kept our heads above water and we don't owe nobody doubt. He could hear his granny speaking, no one's too poor to buy soap. Of course, many people were, but in Cockbill Street they bought soap just the same. The table might not have any food on it, but by gods it was well scrubbed. That was Cockbill Street, where what you mainly ate was your pride. What a mess the world was in, Vimes reflected. Constable Visit had told him the meek would inherit it, and what had the poor devils done to deserve that? Cockbill Street people would stand aside to let the meek through, for what kept them in Cockbill Street, mentally and physically, was their vague comprehension that there were rules, and they went through life filled with a quiet, distracted dread that they weren't quite obeying them. People said that there was one law for the rich and one law for the poor, but it wasn't true. There was no law for those who made the law, and no law for the incorrigibly lawless. All the laws and rules were for those people stupid enough to think like Cockbill Street people. It was oddly quiet. Normally there'd be swarms of kids and carts heading down towards the docks, but today the place had a shut-in look. In the middle of the road was a chalked hopscotch path. Vimes felt his knees go weak. It was still here. When had he last seen it? 
35 years ago? 40? So it must have been drawn and redrawn thousands of times. He'd been pretty good at it. Of course, they'd played it by Ankh Morpork rules. Instead of kicking a stone, they'd kicked William Scuggins. It had been just one of the many inventive games they'd played which had involved kicking, chasing, or jumping on William Scuggins until he threw one of his famous wobblers and started frothing and violently attacking himself. Vimes had been able to drop William in the square of his choice nine times out of ten. The tenth time, William bit his leg. In those days, tormenting William and finding enough to eat had made for a simple, straightforward life. There weren't so many questions you didn't know the answers to, except maybe how to stop your leg festering. Sir Samuel looked around, saw the silent street, and flicked a stone out of the gutter with his foot. Then he booted it surreptitiously along the squares, adjusted his cloak, and hopped and jumped his way up, turned, hopped. What was it you shouted as you hopped? Salt, mustard, vinegar and pepper? No. Or was it the one that went, William Scuggins is a bastard? Now he'd wonder about that all day. A door opened across the street. Vimes froze, one leg in mid-air, as two black-clothed figures came out slowly and awkwardly. This was because they were carrying a coffin. The natural solemnity of the occasion was diminished by their having to squeeze around it and out into the street, pulling the casket after them and allowing two other pairs of bearers to edge their way into the daylight. Vimes remembered himself in time to lower his other foot and then remembered even more of himself and snatched his helmet off in respect. Another coffin emerged. It was a lot smaller. It needed only two people to carry it, and that was really one too many. As mourners trooped out behind them, Vimes fumbled in a pocket for the scrap of paper Detritus had given him. The scene was in its way funny, like the bit in a circus where the coach stops and a dozen clowns get out of it. Apartment houses round here made up for their limited number of rooms by having a large number of people occupy them. He found the paper and unfolded it. First floor, back, 27 Cockbill Street. And this was it. He'd arrived in time for a funeral. Two funerals. Looks like it's a really bad day to be a golem, said Angua. There was a pottery hand lying in the gutter. That's the third one we've seen smashed in the street. There was a crash up ahead and a dwarf came through a window more or less horizontally. His iron helmet struck sparks as he hit the street, but the dwarf was soon up again and plunging back through the adjacent doorway. He emerged via the window a moment later, but was fielded by Carrot, who set him on his feet. Hello, Mr. Orsmiter. Are you keeping well? And what's happening here? It's that devil Gimlet, Captain Carrot. You should be arresting him. Why? What's he done? He's been poisoning people, that's what. Carrot glanced at Angua, then back at Orsmiter. Poison, he said. That's a very serious allegation. You're telling me. I was up all night with Mrs. Orsmiter. I didn't think much about it until I came in here this morning, and then there were other people complaining. He tried to struggle out of Carrot's grip. You know what, he said. You know what? We looked in his cold room, and you know what? You know what? You know what he's been selling as meat? Tell me, said Carrot. Pork and beef. Oh, dear. And lamb. Tut, tut. Hardly any rat at all. Carrot shook his head at the duplicity of traders. And Snorri Glodson Uncleson said he had rat surprise last night and he'll swear there were chicken bones in it. Carrot let go of the dwarf. You stay here, he said to Angua, and head bowed, stepped inside Gimlet's whole food delicatessen. An axe spun towards him. He caught it almost absent-mindedly and tossed it casually aside. Ow! There was a melee of dwarfs around the counter. 
The row had already gone well past the stage when it had anything much to do with the subject in hand, and these being dwarfs now included matters of vital importance, such as whose grandfather had stolen whose grandfather's mining claim three hundred years ago, and whose axe was at whose throat right now. But there was something about Carrot's presence. The fighting gradually stopped. The fighters tried to look as if they'd just happened to be standing there. There was a sudden and general axe... What axe? Oh, this axe. Oh, I was just showing it to my friend Bjorn here. Good old Bjorn. Feel to the atmosphere. All right, said Carrot. What's all this about poison? Mr Gimlet first. It's a diabolical lie, shouted Gimlet from somewhere under the heap. I run a wholesome restaurant. My tables are so clean you could eat your dinner off them. Carrot raised his hands to stop the outburst this caused. Someone said something about rats, he said. I told them I use only the very best rats, shouted Gimlet. Good, plump rats from the best locations. None of your latrine rubbish. And they're hard to come by, let me tell you. And when you can't get them, Mr Gimlet, said Carrot. Gimlet paused. Carrot was hard to lie to. All right, he mumbled. Maybe when there's not enough, I might sort of plump out the stock with some chicken, maybe just a bit of beef. Huh? A bit? More voices were raised. That's right. You should see his cold room, Mr Carrot. Yeah, he uses steak and cuts little legs in it and covers it with rat sauce. I don't know. You try to do your best at very reasonable prices and this is the thanks you get, said Gimlet hotly. It's hard enough to make ends meet as it is. You don't even make them out of the right meat. Carrot sighed. There were no public health laws in Ark Morpork. It would be like installing smoke detectors in hell. All right, he said, but you can't get poisoned by steak. No, honestly, no, 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 shut up, all of you. No, I don't care what your mother's told you. No, 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 I want to know about this poisoning, Gimlet. Gimlet struggled to his feet. We did rat surprise last night for the Sons of Blood Axe annual dinner, he said. There was a general groan. And it was rat. He raised his voice against the complaining. You can't use anything else. Listen. You've got to have the noses poking through the pastry, all right? Some of the best rat we've had for a long time, let me tell you. And you were all ill afterwards, said Carrot, taking out his notebook. Sweating all night. Couldn't see straight. I reckon I know every knot hole on the back of the privy door. I'll write that down as a definitely, said Carrot. Was there anything else on the dinner menu? Volavants and cream of rat, said Gimlet, all hygienically prepared. How do you mean, hygienically prepared, said Carrot. The chef is under strict orders to wash his hands afterwards. The assembled dwarfs nodded. This was certainly pretty hygienic. You didn't want people going around with ratty hands. Anyway, you've all been eating here for years, said Gimlet, sensing this slight veer in his direction. This is the first time there's been any trouble, isn't it? My rats are famous. Your chicken's going to be pretty famous too, said Carrot. There was laughter this time. Even Gimlet joined in. All right, I'm sorry about the chicken. But it was that or very poor rats, and you know I only buy from wee mad Arthur. He's trustworthy, whatever else you may say about him. You just can't get better rats. Everyone knows that. That'll be wee mad Arthur in Gleam Street, said Carrot. Yes, not a mark on him most of the time. Have you got any left? One or two. Gimlet's expression changed. Here, yeah, you don't think he poisoned them, do you? I never did trust that little bugger. Inquiries are continuing, said Carrot. He tucked his notebook away. I'd like some rats, please. Those rats to go. 
He glanced at the menu, patted his pocket, and looked questioningly out through the door at Angua. "'You don't have to buy them,' she said wearily. "'They're evidence. "'We can't defraud an innocent tradesman who may be the victim of circumstances,' said Carrot. "'You want ketchup?' said Gimlet. "'Only they're extra with ketchup.' The funeral carriage went slowly through the streets. It looked quite expensive, but that was Cockbill Street for you. People put money by. Vimes remembered that. You always put money by in Cockbill Street. You saved up for a rainy day even if it was pouring already, and you'd die of shame if people thought you could afford only a cheap funeral. Half a dozen black-clad mourners came along behind, together with perhaps a score of people who had tried at least to look respectable. Vimes followed the procession at a distance all the way to the cemetery behind the Temple of Small Gods, where he lurked awkwardly among the gravestones and sombre graveyard trees while the priest mumbled on. The gods had made the people of Cockville Street poor, honest and provident, Vimes reflected. They might as well have hung signs saying, Kick me on their backs, and had done with it. Yet Cockville Street people tended towards religion, at least of the less demonstrative kind. They always put a little life by for a rainy eternity. Eventually the crowd around the graves broke up and drifted away with the aimless look of people whose immediate future contains ham rolls. Vimes spotted a tearful young woman in the main group and advanced carefully. Uh, are you Mildred Easy? he said. She nodded. Who are you? She took in the cut of his coat and added, Sir. Was that old Mrs. Easy who used to do dressmaking? said Vimes, taking her gently aside. That's right. And the smaller coffin? That was our William. The girl looked as if she were about to cry again. Can we have a talk? said Vimes. There are some things I hope you could tell me. He hated the way his mind worked. A proper human being would have shown respect and quietly walked away. But as he'd stood among the chilly stones, a horrible apprehension had stolen over him that almost all the answers were in place now, if only he could work out the questions. She looked around at the other mourners. They had reached the gate and were staring back curiously at the two of them. Uh, I know this isn't the right time, said Vimes. But when the kids play hopscotch in the street, what's the rhyme they sing? Salt, mustard, vinegar, pepper, isn't it? She stared at his worried grin. That's a skipping rhyme, she said coldly. When they play hopskitch, they sing Billy Skunkins is a brass stud. Who are you? I'm Commander Vimes of the Watch, said Vimes. So, Willie Skuggins would live on in the street, in disguise and in a fashion, and old Stoneface was just some guy on a bonfire. Then her tears came. "'It's all right, it's all right,' said Vimes, as soothingly as he could. "'I was brought up in Cockbill Street, that's why I... "'I mean, I'm... I mean, I'm not here on... "'I'm not out to... Look, I... "'I know you took food home from the palace. "'That's all right by me. "'I'm not here to... "'Oh, damn, would you like my handkerchief? "'I think your one's full.' "'Everyone does it.' "'Yes, I know. "'Anyway, Cook never says nothing.' "'She began to sob again. "'Yes, yes.' "'Everyone takes a few things,' said Mildred Easy. "'It's not like stealing.' "'It is,' thought Vimes treacherously. "'But I don't give a damn.' And now he'd got a grip on the long copper rod and was climbing into a high place while the thunder muttered around him. "'The, uh, the last food you stole, uh, were given,' he said. "'What was it?' "'Just some blancmange and some, you know, that sort of jam made out of meat.' Pate. Yes, I thought it would be a little treat. Vimes nodded. Rich, mushy food, the sort you'd give to a baby who was peaky, 
and to a granny who hadn't got any teeth. Well, he was on the roof now. The clouds were black and threatening, and he might as well wave the lightning conductor. Time to ask. The wrong question, as it proved. Tell me, he said, what did Mrs. Easy die of? Let me put it like this, said Cheery. If these rats had been poisoned with lead instead of arsenic, you'd have been able to sharpen their noses and use them as a pencil. She lowered the beaker. Are you sure? said Carrot. Yes. We mad Arthur wouldn't poison rats, would he? Especially not rats that were going to be eaten. I've heard he doesn't like dwarfs much, said Angua. Yes, but business is business. No one who does a lot of business with dwarfs likes them much, and he must supply every dwarf cafe and delicatessen in the city. Maybe they ate arsenic before he caught them, said Angua. People use it as a rat poison after all. Yes, said Carrot in a very deliberate way. They do. You're not suggesting that Vetinari tucks into a nice rat every day, said Angua. I've heard he uses rats as spies, so I don't think he uses them as elevenses, said Carrot. But it'd be nice to know where wee mad Arthur gets his from, don't you think? Commander Vimes said he was looking after the Vetinari case, said Angua. But we're just finding out why Gimlet's rats are full of arsenic, said Carrot innocently. Anyway, I was going to ask Sergeant Colon to look into it. But we mad Arthur, said Angua. He's mad. Fred can take Nobby with him. I'll go and tell him. Um, cheery. Yes, Captain. You've been, uh, you've been trying to hide your face from me. Oh, did someone hit you? No, sir. Only your eyes look a bit bruised and your lips... I'm fine, sir, said Cheery desperately. Oh, well, if you say so. I'll, um, I'll, uh, I'll look for Sergeant Colon, then. He backed out, embarrassed. That left the two of them. All girls together, thought Angua. One normal girl between the two of us, at any rate. I don't think the mascara works, Angua said. The lipstick's fine, but the mascara... I don't think so. I think I need practice. You sure you want to keep the beard? You don't mean shave? Cheery backed away. All right, all right. What about the iron helmet? It belonged to my grandmother. It's dwarfish. Fine, fine, OK. You've made a good start anyway. Uh, what do you think of this? Said Cheery, handing her a bit of paper. Angua read it. It was a list of names, although most of them were crossed out. Cheery Little Bottom, Cherry, Sherry, Sherry, Lucinda Little Bottom, Sherry, Sherry, Sherry. Ah, uh, what do you think? said Cherry nervously. Lucinda, said Angua, raising her eyebrows. I've always liked the sound of the name. Sherry is nice, said Angua, and it is rather like the one you've got already. The way people spell in this town, no one will actually notice unless you point it out to them. Cheery's shoulders sagged with released tension. When you've made up your mind to shout out who you are to the world, it's a relief to know that you can do it in a whisper. Sherry, thought Angua. Now, what does that name conjure up? Does the mental picture include iron boots, iron helmet, a small worried face and a long beard? Well, it does now. Somewhere underneath Ankh-Morpork, a rat went about its business, ambling unconcernedly through the ruins of a damp cellar. It turned a corner towards the grain store it knew was up ahead, and almost walked into another rat. This one was standing on its hind legs, though, and wearing a tiny black robe and carrying a scythe. Such of its snout that could be seen was bone white. Squeak, it said. 
Then the vision faded and revealed a slightly smaller figure. There was nothing in the least rat-like about it apart from its size. It was human, or at least humanoid. It was dressed in rat-skin trousers, but was bare above the waist, apart from two bandoliers that crisscrossed its chest. And it was smoking a tiny cigar. It raised a very small crossbow and fired. The soul of the rat, for anything so similar in so many ways to human beings certainly has a soul, watched gloomily as the figure took its recent habitation by the tail and towed it away. Then it looked up at the death of rats. Squeak, it said. The grim squeaker nodded. Squeak. A minute later, wee mad Arthur emerged into the daylight, dragging the rat behind him. There were fifty-seven neatly lined up along the wall, but despite his name, wee mad Arthur made a point of not killing the young and the pregnant females. It's always a good idea to make sure you've got a job tomorrow. His sign was still tacked up over the hole. Wee mad Arthur, as the only insect and vermin exterminator able to meet the enemy on its own terms, found that it paid to advertise. We mad Arthur, for those little things that get you down. Rats, free. Mice, one P per ten tails. Moles, half P each. Wasps, fifty P per nest. Hornets, twenty P extra. Cockroaches and similar, by arrangement. Small fees, big jobs. Arthur took out the world's smallest notebook and a piece of pencil lead. See here, now fifty-eight skins at two a penny... City bounty for the tails at a penny per ten, and the carcasses to Gimlet at tuppence per three, the hard-driving dwarf bastard that he was. There was a moment's shadow, and then someone stamped on him. Right, said the owner of the boot. Still catching rats without a guild card, are you? Easiest ten dollars we ever earned, Sid. Let's go and... The man was lifted several inches off the ground, whirled around and hurled against a wall. His companion stared as a streak of dust raced across his boot but reacted too late. He's gone up me trouser. Uh, he's gone up me... Uh. There was a crack. Me knee! Me knee! He's broken me knee! The man, who had been flung aside, tried to get up, but something scurried across his chest and landed astride his nose. Hey, pal, said wee mad Arthur. Can your mother sew, pal? Yeah, then get her to stitch this one. He grabbed an eyelid in each hand and thrust his head forward with pinpoint precision. There was another crack as the skulls met. The man with the broken knee tried to drag himself away, but wee mad Arthur leapt from his stunned comrade and proceeded to kick him. The kicks of a man not much more than six inches high should not hurt, but wee mad Arthur seemed to have a lot more mass than his size would allow. Being nutted by Arthur was like being hit by a steel ball from a slingshot. A kick seemed to have all the power of one from a large man, but very painfully concentrated into a smaller area. You can tell them buggers at the Ratcatcher's Guild that I worked for those I want and charges what I like, he said between kicks, and them shites can stop trying to persecute the small businessman. The other guild enforcer made it to the end of the alley. Arthur gave Sid a final kick and left him in the gutter. We, mad Arthur, walked back to his task, shaking his head. He worked for nothing and sold his rats for half the official rate, a heinous crime. Yet we, mad Arthur, was growing rich because the Guild hadn't got its joint heads around the idea of fiscal relativity. Arthur charged a lot more for his services. A lot more, that is, from the specialised and, above all, low point of view of wee mad Arthur. What Ankh Morpork had yet to understand was that the smaller you are, the more your money is worth. A dollar for a human bought a loaf of bread that was eaten in a few bites. The same dollar for wee mad Arthur bought the same sized loaf, but it was food for a week and could then be further hollowed out and used as a bedroom. 
The size differential problem was also responsible for his frequent drunkenness. Few publicans were prepared to sell beer by the thimbleful or had gnome-sized mugs. We mad Arthur had to go drinking in a swimming costume. But he liked his work. No one could clear out rats like we mad Arthur. Old and cunning rats that knew all about traps, deadfalls and poison were helpless in the face of his attack, which was where, in fact, he often attacked. The last thing they felt was a hand gripping each of their ears, and the last thing they saw was his forehead approaching at speed. Muttering under his breath, we mad Arthur got back to his calculations, but not for long. He spun around, forehead cocked. "'It's only us, we mad Arthur,' said Sergeant Colon, stepping back hurriedly. "'That's Mr. Wee Mad Arthur to yous, copper,' said Wee Mad Arthur, but he relaxed a little. "'We're Sergeant Colon and Corporal Nobbs,' said Colon. "'Yeah, you remember us, don't you?' said Nobby, in a wheedling voice. "'We was the ones who helped you when you was fighting them three dwarfs last week.' "'You's pulled me off of em, if that's what you mean,' said Wee Mad Arthur, "'just when I got em all down.' "'We want to talk to you about some rats,' said Colon. "'Can't take on any more customers,' said Wee Mad Arthur firmly. "'Some rats you sold to Gimlet's Whole Food Delicatessen a few days ago?' "'What's that to "'He reckons they was poisoned,' said Nobby, "'who had taken the precaution of moving behind Colon. "'And never uses poison.' "'Colon realised he was backing away from a man six inches high. "'Yeah, well, see, the thing is, you being in fights and that, "'you don't get on with dwarfs, some people might say. "'The thing is... It could look like you might have a grudge. He took another step back and almost tripped over Nobby. Grudge? Why should I have a grudge, pal? It ain't me that gets the kicking, said Wee Mad Arthur, advancing. Good point, good point, said Colin. Only it'd help right if you could tell us where you got those rats from. Like the Patrician's Palace, maybe, said Nobby. The Palace? No one catches rats at the Palace, that's not allowed. No, I remember those rats, they was good fat ones. I wanted a penny each, but he held out for four for threepence, the old skinflint that he is. Where'd you get them then? We mad Arthur shrugged. Down the cattle market. I do the cattle market Tuesdays. Couldn't tell you where they came from. Them tunnels goes everywhere, see? Could they have eaten poison before you caught them? said Colon. We mad Arthur bristled. No one puts down poison round there. I won't have it, see. I got all the contracts along the shambles, and I won't deal with any gobshite who uses poison. I doesn't charge for extermination, see. Guild hates that, but I chooses me customers. We mad Arthur grinned wickedly. I only goes there when there's the finest eating for the rats and I clean up flogging them to the lawn ornaments. I find anyone using poison on my patch, they can pay guild rates for guild work. <laughs> see how they like it. I can see you're going to be a big man in industrial catering, said Colon. Wee mad Arthur put his head on one side. Just know what happened to the last man that made a crack like that, he said. Er, uh, no, said Colon. Neither does anyone else, said Wee mad Arthur, because he was never found. Have you finished? Only I got a wasp's nest to clean out before I go home. So you were catching them under the shambles, Colon persisted. All the way along, it's a good beat. There's tanners, tallow men, butchers, sausage makers. That's good grazing if you're a rat. Yeah, right, said Colin. Fair enough. Well, I reckon we've taken up enough of your time. How do you catch wasps, said Nobby, intrigued. Smoke em out? Tis unsporting not to hit them on the wing, said Wee Mad Arthur. But if it's a busy day, I'll make up squibs out of that number one black powder the alchemists sell. He indicated the laden bandoliers over his shoulder. 
You blow em up, said Nobby. That don't sound too sporting. Yeah, just ever tried setting and lighting half a dozen fuses and then fighting your way back out of the entrance before the first one goes off? It's a wild goose chase, Sarge, said Nobby as they strolled away. Some rat set poison somewhere and he got em. What are we supposed to do about it? Poisoning rats ain't illegal. Colon scratched his chin. I think we could be in a bit of trouble, Nobby, he said. I mean, everyone's been bustling around detectoring, and we could end up looking a right couple of noddies. I mean, do you want to go back to the yard and say we talked to wee mad Arthur and he said it wasn't him? End of story? We're humans, right? Well, I am, and I know you probably are, and we're definitely bringing up the rear around here. I'm telling you, this ain't my watch anymore, Nobby. Trolls, dwarfs, gargoyles. I've nothing against them, you know me. But I'm looking forward to my little farm of chickens round the door. And I wouldn't mind going out with something to be proud of. Well, what do you want us to do? Knock on every door round the cattle market and ask them if they've got any arsenic in the place? Yep, said Colin. Walk and talk, that's what Vimes always says. There's hundreds of them. Anyway, they'd say no. Right, but we got to ask. Taint like it used to be, Nobby, this modern policing, detectoring. These days we've got to get results. I mean, the watch is getting bigger. I don't mind old Detritus being a sergeant. He's not bad when you get to know him. But one of these days it could be a dwarf giving out orders, Nobby. It's all right for me, because I'll be out on my farm. Nailing chickens round the door, said Nobby. But you've got your future to think of. And the way things are going, maybe the watch will be looking for another captain. It'd be a right bugger if he turned out to have a name like Strong in the Army or Shale, so you'd better look smart. You never wanted to be Captain Fred? Me? A officer? I have my pride, Nobby. I've nothing against officering for them as is called to it, but it's not for the likes of me. My place is with the common man. I wish mine was, said Nobby gloomily. Look what was in my pigeonhole this morning. He handed the sergeant a square of card with gold edging. Lady Silarchi will be at home this PM from five onwards and requests the pleasure of the company of Lord de Nobby's, he read. Oh. I've heard about these rich old women, said Nobby dejectedly. I reckon she wants me to be a giggle low. Is that right? Nah, nah, said the sergeant, looking at Passion's most unlikely plaything. I know this stuff from my uncle. At home is like a bit of a drinks do. It's where all you knobs hobnob nobby. You just drink and scoff and talk about literature and the arts. I haven't got any posh clothes, said Nobby. Ah, that's where you score, Nobby, said Colon. Uniforms is OK. Adds a bit of tone, in fact. Especially if you look dashing, he said, ignoring the evidence that Nobby was, in fact, merely runny. Is that a fact? said Nobby, brightening up a bit. I've got a lot more of them invites too, he said. Posh cars, what look like they've been nibbled along the edges with gold teeth. Dinners, balls, all kinds of stuff. Colon looked down at his friend. A strange and yet persuasive thought crept into his mind. Well, he said, it's the end of the social season, see? Time's running out. What for? Well... Could be all them posh women want to marry you after their daughters who are in season. What? Nothing beats an earl except a duke, and we haven't got one of them, and we ain't got a king neither. The Earl of Ankh would be what they calls a social catch. Yes, it was easier if he said it to himself like that. If you substituted Nobby Nobs for Earl of Ankh, it didn't work. But it did work when you just said Earl of Ankh. 
There'd be many women who'd be happy to be the mother-in-law of the Earl of Ark, even if it meant having Nobby Nobs into the bargain. Well, a few, anyway. Nobby's eyes gleamed. Never thought of that, he said. And some of these girls have a bit of cash, too. More than you, Nobby. And of course I owes it to my posterity to see that the line of Nobses doesn't die out, Nobby added thoughtfully. Colon beamed at him with the rather worried expression of a mad doctor who has bolted on the head, applied the crackling lightning to the electrodes, and is now watching his creation lurch down to the village. Cool, said Nobby, his eyes now unfocusing slightly. Right, but before that, said Colon, I'll do all the places along the shambles, and you do Chitling Street, and then we can push off back to the yard, job done and dusted, OK? Afternoon, Commander Vimes, said Carrot, shutting the door behind him. Captain Carrot reporting. Vimes was slumped in his chair, staring at the window. The fog was creeping up again. Already the opera house opposite was a little hazy. We uh, had a look at as many golems as we could, sir, said Carrot, trying diplomatically to see if there was a bottle anywhere on the desk. There's hardly any, sir. We found eleven had smashed themselves up or sawn their heads off, and by lunchtime people were smashing them or taking out their words themselves, sir. It's not nice, sir. There's bits of pottery all over the city. It's as if people were just waiting for the opportunity. It's odd, sir. All they do is work and keep themselves to themselves and don't offer any harm to anyone. And some of the ones that smashed themselves left, well, notes, sir. Sort of saying they were sorry and ashamed, sir. They kept on going on about their clay. Vimes did not respond. Carrot leaned sideways and down in case there was a bottle on the floor. And Gimlet's whole food delicatessen has been selling poisoned rat. Ask Nick, sir. I've asked Sergeant Colon and Nobby to follow that one. It might just be some kind of a mix-up, but you never know. Vimes turned. Carrot could hear his breathing, short, sharp bursts, like a man trying to keep himself under control. "'What have we missed, Captain?' he said in a faraway voice. "'Sir?' "'In his lordship's bedroom. There's the bed, the desk, things on the desk, the table by the bed, the chair, the rug, everything. We've replaced everything. He eats food. We've checked the food, yes?' "'The whole larder, sir. Is that a fact?' We might be wrong there. I don't understand how, but we might be wrong. There's some evidence lying in the cemetery that suggests we are. Vimes was nearly growling. What else is there? Little Bottom says there's no marks on him. What else is there? Let's find out the how, and with any luck, that'll give us the who. He breathes the air more than anyone else, sir. But we moved him into another bedroom. Even if someone was, I don't know, pumping poison in, they couldn't change rooms with us all watching. It's got to be the food. I've watched them taste it, sir. Then it's something we're not seeing, damn it. People are dead, Captain. Mrs. Easy's dead. Who, sir? You've never heard of her? Can't say that I have, sir. What did she used to do? Do? Nothing, I suppose. She just brought up nine kids in a couple of rooms you couldn't stretch out in, and she sewed shirts for tuppence an hour, every hour the bloody gods sent. And all she did was work, and keep herself to herself. And she is dead, Captain. And so's her grandson, aged fourteen months, because her granddaughter took them some grub from the palace. A bit of a treat for them. And you know what? Mildred thought I was going to arrest her for theft. 
At the damn funeral, for God's sake. Vime's fists opened and closed, his knuckles showing white. It's murder now. Not assassination, not politics. It's murder, because we're not asking the right damn questions. <laughs>